to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, August 9th, and today Julia Yaffe is here to talk about the scandal at Amnesty International that has Vladimir Zelensky pissed and a lot of people in the NGO world saying WTF. And later, Ben Landy is here with Bill Cohan, who will try to explain Arizona's inscrutable Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema and why she's been so protective of the private equity industry. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the dog days of summer. I am joined today by Julia Yaffe, whose capacious mind knows everything about anything happening in the world. Julia, you, you just know a lot. You just know a lot. I'm just complimenting you. That's oh, thanks. I'm oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Now, I, the pressure's on. Um, I wanted to ask you about a interesting international semi-scandal that's percolating involving Russia and Ukraine, and that involves Amnesty International, the international NGO, you might know them as sponsoring the people on the, the street who sometimes hit you up for money to sign clipboards. Um, but this <laughs> is a huge, huge international organization focused on human rights. What did they just do that pissed <laughs> off Ukraine and Vladimir Zelensky? I think that's a really good question. If you just <laughs> left it as like, what did they just do? <laughs> so what happened was, if we rewind, last week on August 4th, Amnesty International put out this report that said, and here I'm quoting from it, it said that Ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's way by establishing bases and operating weapon systems in populated residential areas, including in schools and hospitals, as they mm-hmm. repelled the Russian invasion. And they said that such tactics violate international humanitarian law and endangered civilians, and they turn civilian objects into military targets and that the ensuing Russian strikes in populated areas have killed civilians and destroyed civilian infrastructure. The Ukrainian response was like, you're kidding, right? The thing that's killing civilians in our cities are Russian missiles and Russian airstrikes. If those two things weren't happening, Ukrainian civilians wouldn't be dying. And we wouldn't need to have our military and our soldiers and our military equipment inside our cities. Amnesty said, like, look, we went around some of these cities and we saw that there were schools where we saw soldiers garrisoned or where they had set up shop, essentially, like military parts had set up shop. In one case, they said we saw civilians and soldiers sharing a meal. And unfortunately, this played right into a line of Russian propaganda that Russia has been pushing since the very, very beginning of the war. And it is one that they have used to deflect, basically, and to lie about some of the most horrific things that the Russian military has done. They say that the Ukrainian military has set up shop in civilian areas, that it then, on purpose, draws Russian fire to make Russia look bad. So when they did things like when Russia bombed that maternity hospital in Mariupol, we all saw those harrowing images of, you know, bloodied pregnant women, et cetera. They said, well, actually, it's because this neo-Nazi group was based at that hospital, which was not true. And here you have this 
not just prominent human rights organization, but one that is constantly slamming Moscow, constantly slamming Moscow for detaining political opponents and journalists. Um, And it's kind of seems to be saying that, yes, actually, everything that Russian propaganda has been saying is in fact true. And so, of course, this is just a home run for the Kremlin. And Russian propaganda goes wild with this and, and just takes off running. But were the Ukrainians mad once Russia seized on this report? Or were they mad at Amnesty in the first place for putting out this report saying that Ukrainian fighting tactics were endangering civilian? The former, because it was absolutely predictable that the latter would happen. But also because, again, there would be no need for... Ukrainian military personnel or equipment to be based in Russian cities if they were not being shelled relentlessly by Russians. And furthermore, a lot of these schools where these troops are being garrisoned are empty. A lot of these towns are now empty. They've been evacuated. And a lot of these troops are moving around. And often when they stay in military bases, they are just shot like fish in a barrel by Russians. You know, there have been several instances where Russians have bombed military barracks where they've killed, you know, hundreds or dozens of young military recruits just sleeping in their beds. It's kind of like, how dare you defend yourselves? Then what came out was that Ukrainians, because of course, Amnesty International has branches in all of these countries. It had a branch in Russia no longer. And it has a branch in Ukraine. And people in the Ukrainian branch started speaking up, including the the head of the Ukrainian branch of Amnesty International, who resigned in protest after a prominent official within Amnesty International called Ukrainians who were upset with this report, called them trolls, said it was propaganda, disinformation, just really aggressively pushed back on how upset Ukrainians were and called them trolls, which then, of course, got them even more upset. And the head of the Ukrainian office of Amnesty International said, hey, look, you know, we have people who understand the reality of what the war looks like, who were on the ground and who were trying to give you accurate information about what Mm -hmm. actually was happening and what the reality looks like and feels like. But you weren't listening to us. You, You were dismissing the locals for whatever reason. And so this kind of raised a specter of this kind of colonialist approach, which I think a lot of these international NGOs have, right? They come in as these lady bountiful do-gooders and they're going to teach the locals the way, right? And they're going to help the locals because the locals simply can't help themselves. And when the locals say, well, we can, or actually we could teach you something, they're like, no, 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 sit down. One of the kind of hypotheses that's been floating out there is that Amnesty felt like they had to do this to kind of show balance, you know, a kind of like both sides, a kind of objectivity, right? Yeah. Is Amnesty just like, trying so hard to be pure and progressive that they're just like trying to call out whoever in the name of perceived objectivity and uh, adhering to whatever their founding values are. Because, I mean, Amnesty also like has a history of like being like, they've done so much good work, but also they've done some things that have been like 
cartoonishly progressive. Like I have a dim memory of like during the Iraq war, they called on like the Swiss government to like arrest George W. Bush or something. Yeah. The term the the Gen Z uses is try hard. It's like you're trying so hard to like, you know, flex your virtue here that you're getting yourself in trouble. You know, amnesty often, for example, pisses off the Israeli government because it often issues reports saying the Israeli government is committing war crimes in Gaza or in the West Bank. But then periodically it also says, hey, by the way, Palestinians shouldn't be firing missiles from the roofs of schools or whatever, as if there's like a ton of other room in Gaza to maneuver. But usually they don't do it in the heat of the conflict when people are fighting for their lives. They'll kind of like wait for things to cool down a little bit. This is like in the middle of a war where this country's fighting for its very existence. And it was like, we're going to try really hard for objectivity. And it's like, nobody fucking cares about your objectivity right now. Yeah, it feels like we depend on these sort of NGOs to provide on the ground reporting of casualties, war crimes, et cetera, in places where non-neutral governments won't provide those details and journalists sometimes can't access. And this sort of betrayed that kind of (laughs) usefulness and credibility. Right, but if you're not relying on your own local employees, not just locals, but your own employees who are Ukrainians, then like, what are you really doing? And then the other thing that it, the last thing I will say about this that I've found to be interesting, along with some other things that we've seen, like a line in a Thomas Friedman column last week that kind of drew some people's attention where he said that the White House, the Biden White House, is getting super annoyed with the Zelensky government and they're they're just so frustrated with him and what the hell is he doing? And they're super incompetent. And it feels like, A lot of the things that you and I have talked about on this podcast where the war is almost six months old. We already have the fatigue. People's eyes already glaze over when we talk about Ukraine. But not only that, now we're starting to get the like, it's complicated narrative. Even in quarters who were like, Ukraine, this is such a black and white conflict. We have to defend Ukraine at all costs. Ukraine must win. And now you're starting to get the quote unquote, it's complicated narrative leaking in even into those quarters. And I find that interesting because it's really only been six months. Yeah. All right, Julia, thank you for the update. We appreciate you, as I said earlier. Come back soon. Thanks. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with our man on Wall Street, Bill Cohan. What's happening, Bill? Hey, Ben, it's great to be here with you. So I wanted to ask you about your girl, Kirsten Cinema, who, first of all, single-handedly saved the carried interest loophole the other day in the Democrats' big new climate and tax bill. And then on Sunday, she also forced Democrats to get rid of this new corporate minimum tax rate that was 15% on companies making at least a billion dollars a year. She basically argued that it would be unfair to these smaller companies. And by the way, I just love this language. These smaller companies that just so happen to be owned by private equity. According to the rest of the Democrats, her argument does not make any sense. She's misreading the bill. There would be no impact on these smaller portfolio companies. But is there any logic or merit to cinema's point of view here? No, I think this is just raw politics. I was talking to uh, a uh, head of a private equity firm this morning who surprised me by telling me he was 
one of the largest donors to Kirsten Cinema, which I never would have expected. On the other hand, as soon as he told me that, I realized that he had gotten a nice return on his money, which doesn't always happen in politics. So I realized that the private equity world has come together uh, with whatever they're calling themselves these days, uh, their lobbying arm in Washington, the you know, American Investment Council or whatever they're calling themselves, uh, some sort of bland, amorphous name that betrays what they actually are all about. I mean, this is just blatant, raw politics. I mean, with either mansion or cinema being able to dictate what's in this bill to get it passed since they control the 50th vote and not lose sight of the bigger picture so everybody can sort of claim victory here. Yeah, I keep coming back to this question. What does Kirsten Cinema actually want? Is she protecting private equity out of some strong moral conviction? Does she have one eye on her exit into the private sector? What is the view from Wall Street on what uh, Cinema does next? Well, I don't think people on Wall Street really think about her and what she does, quote unquote, next. She definitely thinks about them. Well, I mean, they other than, you know, donating to her because it's smart politics so that she can, you know, be the swing vote in in situations like this. So, I mean, it's obviously uh, somebody had done a fair amount of analytical work to figure out, you know, if something like this legislation came up and if the repealing of the carried interest loophole were in a tax bill or some sort of monetary bill that she would be in a position to thwart it, as would Manchin. And so I'm sure that's why they're probably the two biggest beneficiaries of private equity largesse on Wall Street and in the Senate. So it just paid off. I mean, I, I don't think she cares one whit about going into private equity. I'm sure she's not even remotely qualified to be in the private equity world, even if she would want to be. I don't see that happening. I'm sure she's got ongoing political aspirations. So this is just a way for, once again, private equity to get what it wants. And I don't really see what the big deal is, honestly. I know it's 15 percentage points of tax, and that's not nothing, especially when we're talking about significant amounts of money here. But, I mean, let's face it. The guys who run these firms, the general partners of these firms are already really, really rich because they've benefited from this, quote unquote, uh, tax loophole for a long time. So even if they had to give it up right now, I mean, they're still going to make tons of money. And what were they really being asked to do? Was it being asked to extend the holding period from an investment to three to five years before you could get the capital gains tax rate? They old companies for five years routinely anyway. So it's like the sleeves off their vest. It's not really clear to me what they were actually being asked to give up here. And it's not at all clear to me how, once again, they triumphed. Maybe the better solution, as some people have suggested to me, would have been to just not tamper with it, leave it in, and take it off the table as a political issue. If all that was required is that they hold portfolio companies five years instead of three years to get that 20% capital gains rate instead of ordinary income, that sleeves off the vest. They are going to hold most of these companies for five years. And if it's less than five years, it's probably because the company was such a huge home run and they've made so much money that if they have to pay more in tax, they'll be just fine. 
which they are anyway, because they're also bloody rich. Cinema's motivations with all of these things are a total mystery to me. Our colleague Tara Palmieri reported the other day that there are whisperings or, or, or chattering about a potential cinema presidential campaign at some point, either as a Democrat or an independent. I don't put a lot of stock in that. I, I think she's just so unpopular nationally beyond her fans on Wall Street. We'll see what happens. I mean, I hear the CEO gig at Carlisle Group just opened up, so maybe she wants that. Yeah, we'll be doing a little speculating on that front for uh, Wednesday. All right. Thanks as always, Bill. This was fun. I'll see you next time. Thank you, Ben. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.